Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. All right, I'd like to welcome Dave Petromala, head coach from Johns Hopkins University, to the Philosophy Podcast. Dave, welcome aboard. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Jamie. Good to spend some time with you. Yeah, likewise. Well, you know, a lot of the times the way I kick these things off is to chat with people about their journey through the sport of lacrosse. Um, And you've had quite a journey as both a player and a coach. And I would love for you to just kind of go back and give us the – the rundown of kind of where you got going in the game as a player and, and some of those great memories and then, and then flowed right into when you kind of figured out you wanted to be a coach and, and some of those experiences along the way. And then we'll talk about mentors maybe after that. Sure. Well, I think my journey is probably a bit odd or maybe a little bit different than uh, many or at least most today. Uh, and maybe a little more common back, you know, back in our time. Uh, I didn't really start fully playing lacrosse till uh, till eleventh grade. Um, really, I lived in a where there was uh, a, a guy that lived around the corner from me who was always out on his front lawn playing catch and shooting on a uh, you know a goal. And uh, I was a baseball guy my whole life. Father coached me in baseball. Um, you know, always dreamed about maybe being one day a, a major league baseball player. And uh, I spent some time with this this guy and and was enamored by uh, you know the game, the stick skills, and it just looked really cool. <laughs> and in eighth grade, I decided uh, I was going to go try out for lacrosse. So I got my first stick. It was a mail order stick, if you can believe that. Uh, you remember the old brand Quick Stick? Oh yeah. So I, I got my first uh, Quick Stick. Believe it or not, the color was orange. Which, if you know me today. <laughs> Not the normal color for me. Um, and I went out and uh, I, I uh, signed up for, I was signing up for eighth grade lacrosse. And as the uh, coach went around and kind of introduced himself, he asked me who I was, what my name was, how long I played. And he looked at me and said, uh, why don't you come back next year? You're too small. And as you can imagine, I was heartbroken. I went home and welled up and probably cried for a day and uh, went back to baseball. And uh, in ninth grade, I got to St. Mary's, and there was a gentleman named John Espy, who, uh, as you know, longtime coach at Stony Brook, had spent some time at Duke University, uh, long before Duke became what it is today. And, uh, you know, John and Coach Espy introduced me uh, to lacrosse. He was my basketball coach and uh, was one of my mentors at the time. And I really had a great relationship. And he said, why don't you come out and play? And I said, okay, I'll, I'll come out and try. And uh, I got to tell you, I was a, I was a bad crease midfielder. And that's really <laughs> told me when they shoot low jump, when they shoot high duck, and go pick up ground balls and play defense. So I did that for basically one season, and then Coach Espy left. Um, and my lacrosse career ended. And I went back to baseball. <laughs> my sophomore year as a, uh, a pitcher and a uh, catcher. And then in 11th grade, just I, I missed it. I really, you know, I had you know, as some people say, got bitten by the bug. Really loved it. So I went to West Point's lacrosse camp. And uh, 
I had decided on my own that I was not a very good offensive player and I was better at defense, so I gave myself a long stick. I went to West Point's camp and uh, actually did okay, I guess, uh, well enough for, uh, for uh, Coach Emmer and uh, Mike Pressler at the time, I believe, to recruit me. And, you know, from there it was uh, on to Hopkins and, uh, you know, a couple years here at Hopkins playing. And then a short stint playing uh, with uh, club ball with Mount Washington, as, as you'll remember. Um, two stints with the world team and uh, I think about four or five years of, of, of major indoor lacrosse. And that was it. So while, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, I had a, a busy career. I don't think I had a very long one when you, when you look at it in terms of how much kids play today. Right. Crazy. And, you know, you look at like some of your peers that kept playing for 10 or 15 years, you know, after you kind of hung it up and made the uh, push to being, you know, a full time, you know, dedicated focus coach. Yeah, I mean, I look at friends now and some of them are still playing. I'm amazed. Uh, you know, they look like hard boiled egg on stilts out there and uh, <laughs> love the game, still playing. And uh, but for me, it was, uh, you know, it, it was really a matter of making a choice. And uh, you know, I finished up my second go around with Team USA in 94, and it was time to make a choice. If I really wanted to do this coaching thing, uh, I needed to step away from the game and, uh, and dedicate myself there and try to uh, build a reputation and a career there. So I, I made that choice. Right. And uh, real quick, uh, who's your uh, all-time great high school teammate that happened to be you moved a little closer to when you decided to play more defense? Uh, well, there was a, 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 a there's a couple, but one that turns out to be a great player, and that's Paul Schmoller, who I know you played against in the Ivy League. Yeah. Uh, I think Paul left us far too early in his life. Um, but Paul, when, when I got to St. Mary's, actually, Paul was an attackman. No way, really? <laughs> you knew that. And uh, he turned out to be a terrific high school goalie. Uh, so I played two years in high school with him as a goalie. Uh, we competed against each other in the 87 National Championship. Uh, went on actually to play together uh, with Team USA in, I believe it was 1990. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, went our separate ways after that. And, and again, as I mentioned, sadly, he was taken from us too early. But yeah. I, I had the pleasure and privilege of uh, playing alongside a great one and, and a great friend. Yeah, no doubt. I had to bring his name up because I miss him a ton. And, for those people who don't know, Paul Schmoller, one of the all-time great people and was a heck of a goalie back in the day also. Um, the Phil Acrosby Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. Real quick, before we move on to the coaching career, I think, you know, one of the games that everybody always talks about, you just brought up the fact that you guys won a championship in 87 against Cornell. Um, but then in 89, everybody talks about that game, you know, uh, and uh, the game of Syracuse Hopkins 1989 as being maybe the greatest game ever played. You probably don't feel that way because you guys came out on the wrong end of it, but it was a hell of a game and it was close. And just tell us a little bit about some of your thoughts and, you know, the, the, the whole drama of that thing and, and the matchups too between you and the, and the Gate brothers and Volks too. You look at college football and basketball and it's got so much pageantry. 
you know, and I think that was the first time that college lacrosse seemed to have a similar type of pageantry. Sure. Uh, and I think a lot of that had to do with the lead up to it. You know, in, uh, in, in 89, we played Syracuse um, in, the, uh, in the first game of the year. That was what we did here at Hopkins. So Hopkins and Syracuse, March 1 or the first weekend, March squared off. So you, you had two heavyweights going at it right away. Um, got a chance to figure out where your team was. Um, and on that team for Syracuse, I mean, it was a who's who of who. You had Gary and Paul Gate. You had uh, Pat McCabe on defense, Steve Scaramas, you know, Matt Palum, you know, at the attack. You had John Zilberti and Greg Burns and uh, and Egan. And, you know, when you look at it, that team they had. That, Marichek. Tom Marichek that ended in 90. That could be one of the all-time, if not the greatest you know, group of talent that's yeah. ever assembled on one team. I mean, there were midfielders of the year, players of the year, attackmen of the year. You know, and then you had you had us play, and we by one goal first game of the year, and we both go through the season to have a really good season, and uh, we wind up matched up at the end of the year in the national championship game, and uh, you know, you've got the best player, you know. In college lacrosse, arguably the best player to ever play the game in Gary Gate. Um, you got a, a really uh, a team that's very creative and freewheeling and uh, exciting to watch and is all about offense and taking risks. And they were very indicative of Coach Simmons, who was a great coach. And then you had Hopkins, which prided itself on, you know, discipline and fundamentals and, you know, not taking risks and, you, you, you almost had, depending on what side you were on, good versus evil. Had <laughs> you know really good matchups. You had Matt Panetta and 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 um, Pat McCabe at, at the attack and defense. Uh, you had Gary and Paul Gate. You had myself and Brian Volker, who turned out to be you know a first team All American and All World player. Um, you had Quint Kestick in the goal and Palem in the goal. So there were just so many great storylines and the game was was terrific uh, I mean the crowd was as large as could be down in uh you know a college park um you know it was two you know two heavyweights slugging it out um came down to the last shot um you know there was drama within the last two minutes of the game um a last second shot on goal it was unfortunately for us saved um so it had everything you could want in athletics um, and, and I, I've had more people tell me, you know, as I've gone through my career, you know, that was the game that really got me excited about lacrosse. You know, when you go back and you look at it, uh, it really had everything you could want as a, uh, as a fan uh, and also as a player, quite frankly. Uh, yeah. It was, it was, you know, the best against the best. Um, it was offense versus defense. Uh, you know, a team that viewed themselves as disciplined as a, and, and a team that we viewed as undisciplined. Um, you know, it, it had all of that pageantry that I mentioned when we, when we started this conversation and uh, turned out to be a great game. I'm not sure if you know, I've never watched the last minute of that game. To this no, time. I didn't know that, but I don't, I don't, I'm not surprised. It's one of those, why, you know, it's like too, it was probably too upsetting. At least you, you came out with a championship though. So that was pretty huge. And, uh, um, and, and like you said, unbelievable pageantry. I'd never really thought about it that way, but it's absolutely true. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, Coach Tierney, 
Um, some people may not know that he was, he, he was uh, a defensive coach at Hopkins before he moved on to Princeton. Talk a little bit about what you learned from him and, and maybe a little bit how, you know, as a player and a coach and a colleague, you know, you played for, you played for him and, 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 and uh, got a chance to kind of study him. And he kind of changed the complexion of the game in many ways. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, so I was blessed when I was here at Hopkins. You know, this was back in the day where you could have any number of coaches on the sideline. So we had, you know, greats like Joe Cowan, Dennis Townsend, and uh, Les Matthews, uh, all, uh, you know, two or three of which are Hall of Famers. Uh, you had Bill Tierney, who was an assistant coach at the time, Don Zimmerman, who had taken over for Henry Ciccaroni. And there's a name that most people don't know that was a, uh, a really important person in, in my life and in many lives here at Hopkins, and that was Fred Smith. Um, and Freddie Smith, if you ever talked to Bill Tierney, he'd tell you that he was one of his mentors. Yeah. The defense was coached by Fred Smith and, and, and Bill Tierney. And, and Freddie was, you know, an older gentleman. He, uh, he was like, like a, that wise old man. He, he, he knew everything. He knew exactly what to say, when to say it, how to say it. Um, you know, and I know he, he mentored Coach Tierney. And so I was with Coach Tierney for, uh, for two years here, my freshman and sophomore year. We actually uh, – won our championship in 87 with Coach Tierney there. And uh, sadly, with Freddie not there, he was back here in Baltimore. And he, uh, soon thereafter, we won and passed away uh, with a battle, a losing battle of cancer. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I was fortunate to have really good mentors. And, you know, Don Zimmerman was a great mentor. You know, yeah. fundamental discipline. You know, all the de all details, all those things that you need to be successful, not just on a field and in a life. You know, and I, I don't know that I was the easiest guy to coach, um, you know, and, and, and having a guy like Bill Tierney uh, here was instrumental to, to my growth and my development, not just as a player, but as a person. And uh, I, I learned an awful lot about, about preparation from him. Um, you know, I learned a very valuable lesson my, uh, my sophomore year in a very strange way. So uh, we played um, in, in 87 and uh, the night before the national championship game, um, you know, we were waiting to find out our matchups and the coaches came around to say, you know, good night and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see you in the morning and, 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 you know, let's get rolling here. And as they came around, uh, I was rooming with Greg Lilly at the time who uh, I'm thrilled that his son is now playing for us here at Hopkins. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, he walks in the room, it's Coach Zim and Coach Tierney, and, you know, we're kind of waiting. And he's like, uh, Greg, you're going to cover, uh, you know, you're going to cover Tim Goldstein. And you would have thought someone, my, my, you, someone popped a balloon in the room. <laughs> All I wanted to do was cover the best guy. <laughs> and he looked at me, he said, and, and, and you're going to cover mine. And... At the time, I, I couldn't have been more upset, more angry, uh, more disappointed, because here I am, you know, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a guy I thought was an important cog on the, the defense, and I covered, you know, Gary Gate and some of Paul Gate and John Verberti, and I'm expected to cover, you know, maybe the, the most prolific attackman in the game at the time. Yep. He goes to the other guy, and I was furious. And uh, so we went in the game, we won the game, um, and, and hindsight's 2020, and he was completely right. Um, Goldstein was more of a feeder. 
you know, a, a quick guy. And Myers was six foot four, six foot five, as you might remember. And Greg Lilly was about five foot ten. So the matchups probably wouldn't have been appropriate if we did it the other way. Right. And the championship. And I learned a lot about that, about being selfless. Um, and as a coach, um, you know, ha having a strategy, understanding your opponent and not necessarily putting best on best, but putting the right guy on the right guy. Um, and then for years after, he's been a great mentor. Uh, you know, Coach Tierney taught me a really important lesson that, you know, this isn't, a, this isn't about winning and losing. It's about people. Recruiting is about relationships. The success of your team is about being able to inspire. Um, you know, and, and, and get your guys to, to work collectively. And, and I quickly realized that this whole thing wasn't about winning and losing and that it was all about the people. Um, and, and to this day, you know, we talk about those things. We talk about, you know, kids and, you know, the difference and, and how we have to grow as coaches and develop and change, you know, to, to be successful and to allow these guys to be successful. So it's been a huge part of my life. Yeah, it's really, that's really awesome, uh, awesome stories. And, and when you think about how, you know, the way that Princeton, the Princeton defense, right, they started to, you know, go with like, a, you know, a cup field half, force people down the alley, slide really early. That was a little different from, you know, the 80s and even a lot of the beginning of the 90s. How much of that were you guys doing at Hopkins as far as the beginning of what became sort of uh, his defensive system that a lot of people have, you know, one way, shape or another are doing? Yeah, I think he took part of the whole. Yeah. And by that is I think he took the bits and pieces that he felt uh, were important and then adjusted. So, so what, what I mean is, you know, when I was here, we cut the field in half. It was, yeah. that was, uh, you know, that was a fundamental point, point in our defense. You know, we took away the top side. All things that he taught yeah. when he Princeton. Uh, the difference was, I think he created, um, you know, the more of the slide recover philosophy. Right. A lot of what we did here at Hopkins and that Freddie did, um, and added his own piece to it. And, and his component was instead of we're going to play man on man and we're going to force you to low angle shots, you know, I don't have those same kind of players here at Princeton. So I'm going to take the fundamental portion of you know, cutting down the angle and forcing them down the side, taking away the top side, um, you know, trying to be more disciplined and contained rather than chase and check. And I think he took all those things that we had done here already at Hopkins and then adjusted that to his personnel, which was we're not as good covering the ball. We don't have the same personnel. So what we're going to do is do those things. And, oh, by the way, we're going to slide early. And he created – you know, a, 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 a different level of support, a different kind of support. He took, you know, what we used to use as a mismatch defense, which we didn't like the matchup, so we'd slide early. And he made that his full-time defense. And, uh, you know, credit to him. Uh, he, he found different ways to communicate and how to teach it. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, 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 the verbiage uh, that was used within the, the defense uh, so he took parts of that parts of the hole with him and then created, you know, this additional portion of the defense that has now, you know, influenced all of us years yep. later. Yep. Hey, when I became a 
the Division One head coach. First thing I did was buy the uh, Princeton Way video, and I watched it about a hundred times. <laughs> you know, you had to know it. You had to learn it. You know. Um, all right. Here's a question before we move on to talking about your 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 coaching journey. The last question I have for you is that you know you were you know a complete defender. You know. You, 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 you could handle the ball. You made great passes up the field. You could play transition. You, you were great on the ball. You could take it away, but you also, you know, could play a great position and, and you were a great communicator and great off the ball. Uh, the point, the, the, the point I want to ask you is all that stuff translates now, except for maybe the takeaway part. Do you believe that the takeaway defenseman that was prevalent in your day that was able to take it away without, you know, without selling out and risking everything every time. Do you think that's, do you think that's gone for just because of the sticks or do you think it's an overriding sort of mentality of coaching that kind of keeps away? In other words, do you think if you were 20, 20 years old right now that you could be able to put the ball on the ground and still be able to play defense the way you used to, or do you think the sticks are that big of a deal or is it kind of a combination of a lot of factors? Well, first of all, thanks. You flattered me with those nice things. I'm not sure many of them are true, but you know, you're, Um, You know, I would say I would be a pain in the tail in this day and age as I was back then. I would think. And I would would address your question by saying it's probably all the above. Um, When you look at, you know, takeaway guys, if you think of today, it's funny you bring this up. I was doing a whiteboard session at the convention uh, on Saturday night, and a gentleman asked me basically the exact same question, minus including me. He said, you know, in today's day and age, there are no checkers. Why do you think that is? How come? What's changed? You know, and when you think about it, you could think about, you know, years where there were tremendous checkers. I think about, you know, the Syracuse teams of, you know, Rick Beardsley, Hans Schmidt, uh, Chad Smith, you know, all on one team. You know, you th- I think about, you know, the way I played, I think about Steve Kisslinger, who played at Towson. Um, these are all great you know, takeaway guys. Uh, and, and what's changed is a number of things, Jamie. First and foremost is I think coaching changed first. I agree. It was the sticks. I think it was the coaching. And I think it went from being aggressive and being really proactive and, and, and active on ball to containing. And that's the way defense was, was taught. And to run that slide and recover defense that we're right. talking and uh, I, I don't blame Coach Jimmy for this. Everybody kind of added their own little piece as they, as they moved on. Right. But on that slide recover defense, you had to contain. You couldn't afford to take risks and knock the ball down and, or, and then put yourself out of position and then not be able to recover quickly because that defense is designed to slide, you know, release, recover all in one pass. You know, a great defense now slides, recovers, in one pass. If you're recovering in three and four passes, you're in trouble. So I, I think that the, the area that changed first was, was the approach from coaches. Then you had the change in sticks. Um, you know, you had the high wall, and then you had an offset head. Then you had these shafts. And then you add to that these big, strong, physical athletes that are now playing our game. I mean, you look at Gary Gaten at our time. He was different than most other guys. And now you look at midfielders and a lot of them look just like him. Attackmen, I look at Cole Williams and Terry Reardon, six foot five, 210, 20 pounds. 
Uh, so I think when you add in all that together um, and the coaching portion, we got away from takeaway guys and yeah. was more about containing. It was more about the team defense rather than the one-on-one -on -one matchup. And when I played, it was really more about, you know, you got your guy, cover him. And if we have to slide to you, we will, but we prefer not to. You know, right. think about Syracuse teams that were real successful with the guys I mentioned. Yep. But the game has changed since then with the athletes, the stick technology, and then all the coaching that goes into it. And then I just think we've gotten to a point where it's become a lost art and guys just don't know how to do it. Now, kids try to check when, when players are moving north-south rather than attacking when they're east-west, when those are the, the better moments to check. Kids don't understand how to, how to set up a check and that a poke check sets up an overhead or a butt dig or a back check sets up an over from behind. Um, all that stuff kind of got lost in that shuffle. Yeah, you know, and I, I have a theory on the coaching piece, too, that I think that when people start really kind of stop teaching the V hold as much players didn't really understand how to get that kind of depth to set up all those checks. I mean, like if I was going against Dave Petramala, I was going to go right-handed. I wasn't going lefty, which sucked for me because I'm a lefty. But the point is, is that, you know, if you go righty on a lefty or lefty on a righty, they, they don't have that depth. But as soon as, but sure. you know, and everyone's playing cross check hold right on right. You know, everyone's playing cross check hold left on left. You know, and I, I was wondering if you think that there's something to that, because I, I look at that V-hold, that feel of it, of being able to get somebody deep in there and to be able to use your stick to create ball pressure as a great developer of being able to have a, a sense for using your stick for leverage and for ball pressure. Yeah, I, I think there's, your, your philosophy or your, your approach is correct. I think it's much more challenging to create on-ball pressure um, you know, when you're, when you're not in that V-hold or cross-handed. I mean, that's where you're over the head, your poke check, your, your butt dig, all that comes into play. Um, you know, and when you go the other way to the cross-check hold, the variety or array of checks that you're able to throw, I think becomes a, it decreases, but it also come, becomes uh, less, less of a high-percentage check um, because you're, you're putting your body a little more out of position. Um, the other thing is I think coaches started to evolve and said, look, if you're more comfortable holding backside and you're a lefty covering a lefty, but you don't want to hold in that V-hold, you want to hold backside, we're okay with that. I think yeah. coaches evolved there as well. So from, from that point of view, you don't have the ability to check because your stick's not in a position to do anything but either, you know, uh, you know jam and slap. Uh, you can't go over the head. You can't poke. So I, I, I would agree with you uh, that that the advent of the cross check hold on both sides. Yeah. Uh, put it as well. Yeah. The Philocrosophy podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. There is no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son must utilize video to learn his game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3video.com. All right, let's talk a little bit about your coaching journey. Tell us uh, kind of where you got your start, and if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you took from each guy along the way, and including your assistants, by the way. 
sure. So I was blessed, um, you know, to be coached by, by, by great coaches. So I was fortunate to learn the game, you know, and I was fortunate to, to be taught that the fundamental portion of the game was, was critical. You know, I learned not just what you do, but I learned the, the, the how and why. Um, you know, and that served me well, hopefully, you know, throughout my career. Uh, my first coaching job came in my fifth year of, of college. Um, I was here for a fifth year and uh, was offered an opportunity to coach over at the Gilman School. Uh, no pay, just come on over, volunteer your time. And, you know, I had plenty of that on my hands. So I went over there and coached and uh, I loved it. I mean, I really, really loved it. Um, it was great working with the guys and, you know, I gravitated toward, toward teaching and uh, I really enjoyed the interaction and uh, I've always loved practice, you know, even as a, I love to practice. I didn't love to run. I would tell you that <laughs> practice and we could have practiced for five hours and you would have gotten no complaint from me or many of my teammates. We just love to play. Yeah. Did that for a year. And then uh, Tony Seaman took over as the head coach, Johns Hopkins. Um, after I think it was after the 90 World Games, and uh, reached out to me when I was in Australia, and said I just took the head coaching job, and I'd really love for you to be on my staff. And uh, I quickly accepted. Um, the question was how to make it work financially. So for a whopping three thousand dollars, I became <laughs> part-time assistant. Uh, you know the drill. I'm sure you yep. went that as many for us have. Yep. And uh, I took a job in an aluminum extrusion factory, uh, <laughs> Hailthorpe, Maryland. It was owned by a Hopkins guy. And I reported to work at about 5.30, 6 a.m. every morning. Uh, I had my metatarsal boots on, was uh, full of grease when I left. And I got out of there about 2.30, which got me to Hopkins for a quick shower and practice at 3.30. And uh, I loved it. I was with Tony Seaman. I was with John Hawes uh, at the time. Dennis Townsend and Joe Cowan uh, were volunteers for, for Coach Seaman, and I absolutely loved it. You know, Tony taught me a lot about thinking outside the box. And, and you know, you having played against him during your time at Brown, I think would clearly understand that. Um, you know, one of strengths was his willingness to uh, step away from the traditional way of doing things and to – be a little bit more creative, whether in the offensive end or the defensive end. Um, and I had been weaned on, you know, this is kind of how you do it. And this is the right way and the best way. So for me to, to have an opportunity to, 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 to see that firsthand was, was hugely uh, important. Um, you know, from there, I, uh, I went on to be the assistant coach at Penn for a couple of years on GW Mix. Um, you know, and, and for me, GW was was the Tony protege. So there was a little bit of that in him, except GW was a younger guy. And how GW kind of went about handling the guys on and off the field uh, really served, served me well. You know, and I also, I had to learn how to recruit. And GW Mix was a guy that really enjoyed recruiting. He really, I, I, funny thing to say, he wrote a great letter. I mean, if he sat down yeah. and he wrote the letter, he made you feel good about yourself, about the institution he was representing and the opportunities you had there. Uh, so I went there, and then I did one year at Loyola College, and I think that's where I really learned how to work. Uh, I was with Dave Cottle and a gentleman by the name of Bill Durgle, who you remember, yep. was Loyola and Rutgers for a few years. Um, 
and we had an unbelievable year. Um, we were, I think, number one going into the tournament. We wound up losing to Brown University um, with the Oliver Marty team and those guys. What year was that? That was 1991, I believe. 91 or 92. And, and uh, we would spend hours in the office. And every time, you know, Coach was a chalk guy. So he'd sit and draw something up and say, okay, defend this. So I would defend it. And in, in, in typical Dave Cottle fashion, he'd be like, oh, that's perfect. That's just what we want. Here's what we're going to do now. <laughs> Coach always had the chalk last. So then I'd say, okay, well, if you're going to do that, we're going to do this. And he'd say, oh, that's perfect for us. And we'd go round and round. And Coach really challenged you to know your stuff and to be prepared. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time watching Bobby Knight and basketball. And we created an offense, or he and Bill did, that we actually today at Hopkins kind of use a, a hybrid of that in our, in our motion. Bobby and I have talked a lot about what we did at Loyola and how we kind of grow that for us here. Um, from there, I came back to Hopkins for three years, uh, back under Tony Seaman as the defensive coordinator, and got the chance to coach some pretty good ones, including John Gagliardi and Brian Kuzma, uh, who were greats. And uh, then I went to Cornell as the head coach for three years and uh, worked with Jeff Tambroni, who's turned out to be a terrific coach. You want to talk about guys that teach their, you know, their bosses. Jeff was a West Jenny guy. He was meticulous. Um, he had a great way about him with the players. Yeah. Um, wasn't, a, wasn't a yes guy. Wasn't afraid to challenge you and ask questions and say, why are we doing that? I don't know if I agree with that. Um, and then came back to Hopkins, and I've been here for, this is year 19. Uh, I was with Seth Tierney, and I was blessed to be with Seth, who really was a terrific X's and O's guy. Um, you know, had a much different uh, approach and really was great with the players, um, you know, in terms of developing relationships with those guys and getting them to play hard for him. Um, Seth did a really great job of keeping things simple. He didn't get too complicated. Um, and I think for him, less was more. And that was, you know, valuable to, to be around. Uh, Billy Dwan has been my right-hand guy for 18 and a half years. And uh, if there was ever a guy that was like Fred Smith, it's Bill Dwan. Uh, talk about the most even-keeled human being that I've ever been around. Uh, Bill doesn't get too high, doesn't get too low, has a great sense of poise and composure. Uh, one of the best human beings I've ever been around. And great guy. Yeah is really spectacular and then Bobby is a terrific coach and he is a challenger he wants to challenge it he wants to he wants to push the envelope and say why are we doing this coach how come we're doing this where does this fit I don't I don't agree with that um, and I've never wanted yes men and I don't know that I've ever had those guys so all of them have helped me become the coach I am today and I'm blessed to, to have kept this staff together uh you know, for quite some time, sometimes it's basically since uh, 2007 we've been together. And uh, I've learned wow. it from all of them along the way and, and we'll continue to. Yeah, awesome, man. What a great, what a great journey it's been. And um, I want to turn the, uh, the, the, the page here on to a new topic and talk a little bit about a really uh, important topic that every, every coach I talk to is passionate about talking about. I'm sure you will be too. But 
let's talk a little bit about trying to develop your culture at Hopkins and, and what's important to you and, and kind of how you go about doing it. You know, um, I think a lot of people would love to, would love to hear about that. Well, what we are today culturally is different than what we were when I first got here. And I would tell you what we were three years ago. Um, you know, I had a, uh, a, a distinct epiphany, if you want to call it, a, a change uh, in, in my approach to certain things uh, over the last two years. So, you know, we had a lot of success here early, Jamie. I mean, we worked at it and we were disciplined and we were tough on our guys and we were demanding and, you know, and our guys were so well prepared for games. And, and I want to say for life after lacrosse, um, you know, we've always made that an important part of our culture, which is our job here is, is, is three simple things. It's to help these guys become the best men they can be first, the best students they can be second, and the best players they can be third. And that is the, that is the ultimate goal for us. And yes, you want to win national championships, and yes, you want to win Big Ten championships, but at the end of the day, it's the development of these young men and putting them in a position where they are prepared and ready to be successful for the real world when they leave here. And the real world, as you know, isn't, uh, isn't the kindest of places. Uh, so we were really demanding. I was very tough. Um, I would tell you I was very sharp with those guys. And uh, in, recently, um, you know, we went through two years where we kind of dovetailed at the end of the season. We, uh, we just weren't playing our best lacrosse. And, uh, you know, we play Brown and we don't perform well. And uh, I would argue with you that us being there that year when we lost five or six of our top nine middies to injuries was a pretty tremendous feat to be there. Yeah. But those are the expectations here at Hopkins and more. Uh, but we didn't play well. We weren't uh, energetic. We weren't as excited. And we just didn't perform. And then the next year, the same thing happened. And you know as well as I do, you know, when you, when you start to see things happen, not just one year, but two years, you start to see a pattern. And it was a pattern I felt like we really needed to address. So I wound up, you know, we spent the whole summer looking at ourselves, not just uh, schematic offense, defense, face-offs, man up, man down, all those things. But we really took a look at ourselves culturally and you know, one of the first questions we asked was, you know, are the two hours that our guys, or two and a half hours our guys are spending out on that field, is that the best part of their day? And I don't know that we could answer that yes all the time. And that was a goal. We needed to make that be the case. Um, doesn't mean we didn't have to work hard. And doesn't mean we couldn't work hard. But we needed the guys to leave the field feeling really good about what they had invested in each other. Um, and in Hopkins, and, and what our staff had invested in them. Um, we felt like we were tired at the end of the year. Um, we felt like, um, you know, we had too many little things going on, too many little distractions. Um, nothing terrible, but just little distractions that we were constantly dealing with. So we took a look at our culture, and I had uh, someone approach me, um, Jim Stagnita approached me, and he put together this group called Complete Athlete 360. And it was cultural, it was leadership, it was team development. And, you know, I, 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 
I'm a pretty private guy and I was unsure whether I wanted to bring someone from the outside in, but it felt like we needed to listen to other people. So we, we decided we would do that. And the other thing we decided was we were going to change our, our calendar year. We were going to change our practice schedule um, and do things that were different. So I'll, I'll start there. And the practice portion of things, we started a week later when we got here in the fall. We started a week later in the spring. Now that's two weeks. And for a guy like me to surrender two weeks of being out on the field, coaching is not an easy thing to do. Um, you know, I was a more is more guy at times. Right. You know, me, and this is just me. If I'm struggling with someone, I'm staying at the office late. I don't care if it's 10, 11, 12. I'm staying as late as I need to get it done. But not everybody's wired that way. And we started to look at the kids. And, you know, everybody wants to talk about this millennial generation and how different they are and, and <clears throat> take a lot of heat. And in all actuality, when you sit back and you look at them, that great capacity, you know, where they're really different from you and I growing up is, you know, when our fathers told us to do something, we just did it. Yeah. You know, we didn't have questions. We might have wondered why. We might have mumbled under our breath why. But we did it because that's what we were told. And young people today want to know why. And I, I've come to grips with that. And I've actually embraced we should be teaching them why. So, you know, we took a different approach to, to our team. And we really have tried to spend even more time getting to know them, developing, um, you know, developing relationships that have depth to them, not just you know, hey, Jamie, how are you doing? You know, it's what's going on with mom and dad, what's going on in school, the girlfriend, um, you know, how are you doing personally? So the depth of our relationships have grown. Uh, we created a, uh, you know, um, a mentor program here, not a, a big brother, but we want the older guys to mentor the younger guys. So we created a mentoring program. Uh, we moved the practice dates back so we would be given back basically two weeks at the end of the season. And it was those two weeks at the end of the season we were struggling with the most. Right. Uh, started to play box lacrosse on Monday. Uh, you know, we talked about what are the things we need as a team. We needed to be more confrontational defensively. What better way to do that than to put guys on top of each other indoors? I mean, there's no hiding. There's no getting away from each other. I mean, you cross that, that, that midline, and you've you got a guy in your shorts. We needed that offensively. We needed it defensively. We thought it could help us develop toughness defensively. We thought it would help us offensively with the picking and screening game, uh, in, in, in handling the ball in, in tight quarters. Um, I don't know necessarily feel like, we ran our offense in there, but there were bits and pieces of our offense. Yeah. And, doing, and we weren't coaching our guys to be box players. We're coaching them to be field players and developing a skill set that comes from the box game. Right. Uh, and you know this better than most. Um, and the guys loved it. We did that at 6.30 on Monday mornings. And I would tell you, you know, you get a young guy up at 6.30 in the morning, it's like, oh, man, we got to get up early. They never looked at it that way. They never looked at it in practice. They looked at it as fun. So here we are having a great time developing skills that we desperately need to be successful 
on the field, and we're doing that without our guys even thinking they're putting a day's work in. On Tuesdays, we, we went back to just normal practice on Homewood Field. Uh, Wednesdays, we were, we were off. Um, on Thursdays, back to normal practice on Homewood Field. And then on Fridays, we practiced for an hour in the, in the, uh, in the morning. And then the last hour, we would bring officials in every Friday, and we would scrimmage. And we would, we would uh, create a north versus south, uh, older versus younger um, type thing. And we had a great fall. It was extraordinarily positive. And, and, you know, when we went home for Thanksgiving, our guys were saying, gosh, I can't believe fall ball's over it, which tells me something. That's awesome. And it's, it, it, was, it was quick and short to that. We started a week later in the spring, and we did something, Jamie, that we'll continue to do here. Um, one of the more challenging things I've done as a coach we started to take Thursdays off on the practice field. So preseason is normal, Monday through Saturday. And as soon as we get to the games, we practice Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We do nothing but film on, on Thursday. We do a half-hour offense, half-hour defense, go home. And these guys were out of here within an hour. Um, and then Friday, we decided we would practice a little bit more intensely, but not as long. And the goal was to have us incrementally get better as the week went on and more excited and more prepared. And prior to that, we felt like Monday was great. Tuesday was a little worse. Wednesday was worse. Thursday was not good. And now all of a sudden you're coming to Friday and you go, God, Almighty, we're not playing well. We're in trouble here. And we were smart enough to see it, but the guys were smart enough to see that they could feel it. And thus, we wouldn't perform as well as we were capable. And I felt like last year, we were excited and, you know, played with intensity in every game. And it doesn't mean we played great. It right. doesn't mean it's executed well. But in order to win, I, I would rather be really excited to play and fresh. And, you know, years ago, I would have told you I wanted to be prepared. And I, we've substituted one for the other, I guess. And it was very beneficial. So, you know, from a, a programmatic standpoint in terms of practice and schemes and things like that, we changed. We let them go a little bit more defensively. We got a little bit more aggressive. Um, you know, uh, we, we backed off, quite frankly. We took a much more positive approach. And rather than say, you know, hey, what the, you know, what the heck are you doing there? It was, man, you really screwed that one up. What were you thinking? You know? <laughs> And you're saying the same thing, but in a different fashion. And, and that criticism, that question is accepted in a much different way. And we've continued to do that. Um, from a cultural standpoint, we undressed the whole thing. Um, we brought in a guy named J.C. Glick, who he works literally with me. I talk to him weekly. You know, you've got CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. Who works with those guys? Who tells those guys, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? How's that helping us? You know, who challenges those guys? We all need it. And, you know, I found myself with really nobody to talk to. Yeah. You know, as the head coach, who do you talk to? Right, yeah. Been there, you've done this. You've yeah. dealt with all the problems. And you don't want to lay this on your assistants. They got enough worries about the offense, the face-offs. So you catch yourself, you know, swallowing all this responsibility with nobody to, no one to talk to, bounce things off of, say, hey, what do you think of this? And, 
So, you know, I would use Coach Belichick some, but, you know, I, I had JC come in and uh, he really helped just me adjust how I was thinking. And I've always thought a leader's job was to motivate his men. And now I believe a leader's job is to inspire his men and inspire hope and trust. Big difference. Yeah. Leadership is positive and negative. One or the other. It can be both. Inspirational leadership is one thing. It's positive. And while I do believe there is a place for motivational leadership, and I still do it with our team, my goal is to inspire them more. Um, you know, I didn't realize the effect I was having on our guys. Um, I didn't realize I walked in the room and I cracked a joke, thing, things were approached differently. And if I walked in with my head down because I was just so focused on something, that was interpreted differently. You just, sometimes you don't look at yourself that way. And as a leader, you have to be really aware of, of, of who you are and what you are and, and, and the vibes that you're giving off. Um, we had, we've worked with our guys on leadership, on holding each other accountable, um, about setting standards. Um, we created a culture statement. They actually, every day before, every Monday at practice, they, uh, they recited it, memorized it. And we sat down with the team and we figured out what they wanted to be, what they wanted to, it to look like, what they wanted it to feel like, and what they wanted the outside world to think. And we came up with words that helped define the things that we wanted to be, represent, and we wanted to do. And we've tried to, to do everything we do each day with that culture statement in mind. And how is what we're doing, how does that fit into our team culture? Does it? If it doesn't, then how are you helping us? If it does, then you are helping us. Um, if, if a guy isn't adhering to the culture, then what are we doing as, as brothers, as teammates, to help him? Rather than to just be critical of him, to actually help him do the things he needs to do to help you know, grow our culture. And so it's been a really it's really, exciting. Yeah. really yeah. And I would tell you last fall was the scariest fall I've ever had as a coach. If I told you I didn't raise my voice once last fall, that, that might be a, an understatement. And it was so different for me. I, I didn't feel like I was coaching. <laughs> what I've realized is I've kind of found my happy medium between none and some. And I think it's benefited our guys. And if our guys are willing to see the head coach change, adjust, and do things for the betterment of the team and them, they're willing to do the same. So it's really been a uh, awesome. Great, great year and a half with this stuff. So I, uh, JC Glick and Stags, uh, Jim Stagnita came on and did a little presentation on my coach's training program. And I got a chance to listen to them. And um, one of the concepts that JC always talks about that before we turn the page on this topic, I think it's really interesting and I'd love to hear your opinion on it, is he talks about an inverted sort of pyramid and uh, uh, like not the, as opposed to the fighter pilot model where everyone is supporting the fighter pilot. It's more like, uh, uh, you know, I, I forget, you'll have to explain it to me. And then he talks a lot about resourcing the, the guys as opposed to the other way around. He uses some of these terminologies that I found really interesting. I'd love to hear your opinion on it. Well, I'll give you an example. You know, mm -hmm. when we sat down the first meeting, he sits down and he looks all the part of uh, 
you know, he's a, he's a retired uh, lieutenant colonel in, in the Ranger Force. Um, he's, you know, a uh, um, Bronze Star, three, I think three-time Bronze Star winner, 11 meritorious medals for, for service. He's unbelievable. He looks the part, big, strong, got the tattoos, you know. He, he, he looks like what you would define as like a ranger or a seal or a green yeah. beret. Um, so he sits down and he says to me, so let me ask you a question. Um, is, is trust earned or given? So I'm, I, I think I'm like prepared for this guy. And I'm like, oh, it's earned. You know, no doubt it's earned. You know, I'm emphatic. And he's like, really? He says, so every time that you get in a car and you drive home, you trust all those other drivers. They've earned your trust. You trust that they're going to be safe and drive appropriately. And because every time you get on a plane, you trust that that pilot's done everything the right way and, you know, I haven't done anything wrong, you know, and I'm looking at him like, well, that's a bit different. He goes, no, it's not. He goes, you either give it, it's either given or you earn it. And it was, it was a very different kind of view for me. You know, then he said, uh, tell me about leadership. You know, how do you view leadership? And I, you know, I defined with A, B, C, and you're motivated. And he goes, no, you know, it's funny. I, I like to inspire my and when he said that, I stopped. And, and if you stopped for a second, Jamie, would you rather your guys play because they're motivated to play or they're inspired to play? Even the, even the word inspired sounds so different. So great. Let, let me backtrack for one second. I haven't mastered all this stuff. I, I revert on different days, and I still have a ton of work to do as a, as a person and as a coach. Um, but I want to inspire our guys now. I want our guys to feel like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, they're doing it for all the right reasons. Um, you know, if a guy doesn't hit a line in a sprint, rather than one of our guys say, hey, you know, what the heck are you doing? You're cheating us. Hit the line. One of our guys will look and go, hey, Jamie, did you know you missed that line? I know you didn't want to. And you, in our culture, will say, I'm sorry, I, sh I shouldn't have done that. If it continues to happen, well, then you know you got a problem and you got to help that guy either decide if he's buying into our culture or, or, or we got to move on. Um, it's been really, uh, it's been eye opening for me. And uh, not that I believe in every bit of it. Right. That's forced me and my staff to think in different ways. Um, and we're building from the foundation up and we're asking these guys to be a part of that foundation and to, to have a say in that foundation. I mean, what do they want their team to look like? You know, and now, okay, well, that's what you want it to look like, then define it. Uh, I sat in on one of the meetings and uh, we were talking about just that. And one of the guys, he said, you got 10 minutes, go draw what you want the team to look like, what you want it to feel like, and what you want the outside world to look at it like. And go draw. Now I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be an awful exercise. These guys draw, and this is going to be a mess. Ten minutes later, they come back. You know, they got different things. And the last one on one of them is stick figures. And they're all piled on top of each other. And there's a line. And on the other side of that line, there's a stick figure falling and a stick figure at the bottom holding his arms out. And he goes, well, I don't know what that means. Tell me what that means. He goes, I want us to work 
together and I want us to catch each other. I want us to work together to get over that wall, to overcome the challenges, and I want us to be there for each other to catch one another on the other side. And I was like, wow, that's really impressive. Another guy drew a, 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 like a, a glass of milk and he wrote on it, whole milk. I, I'm thinking to myself, what is this? And he goes, I want us to be whole. He goes, I don't want us to be fractured. I don't want there to be clicks. I want us to be whole. Us being whole is really important. And I was really amazed at how thoughtful our yep. guys were. And I, that's an important word for us because our guys are much more thoughtful now. And, you know, we don't want guys that do things because they're obedient. We want guys to do things because they believe it's what's right and what's best for the team, not because coach says to do it. Uh, make, that makes sense to you? I love it, man. It's, it's so – it's amazing that the word inspire is so much more exciting to talk about. You can just see it in, in your, you know, in your explanations and how passionate you are about it. And it's awesome that, you know, an old dog can learn new tricks too, you know, because well, it's what we're asking our guys to do, you know. As I told you, you know, Bill Tierney taught me when we're, when we're, we're done being willing to change, we're done. And, yeah. uh, you know, I needed to reinvent myself a little bit. We needed to redefine our culture. And there are many things, Jamie, that the old five team did that we expect this team to do. We expect them, you know, to have class, character, integrity, all those things. But how we explain things, why we do them aren't necessarily early because we have to we do them because we want to do them we think they're right we think they're important to the success of, of, of the group and we're really everything we're ta we talk about now is how does this impact the guy next to you and all the other guys and every choice we make including myself coach benson coach Juan, all the choices we make impact everybody um it's been a great learning process and i would tell you i still got a lot to learn in regards to this i'm, I'm not fully comfortable every moment of every day and sometimes the old guy pops back out and yep oh and, and, and that's part of it but uh it's, right. it's, it's been, uh, been helpful to me and, and our team has bought into it it's awesome um about a year ago we lost a, a great blue jay um and uh i would love to spend a little bit of time to have you chat a little bit about how Dave Huntley impacted you as a, you know, as a guy, as a person, as somebody that was a, a father of one of your players, as an alum, as a friend, as a coach, as a mentor, all of that. He was one of my great friends, and I would love to hear. I think a lot of our listeners would love to hear some stories and some some things you took from Hunts. Yeah, well, I bet you're sitting there, and when you think of Dave Huntley, and you think of what we just talked about. Dave yeah. had a lot of him, you he know. Did really did. Dave wanted to inspire people. Um, what I loved about Dave was he was a lacrosse nerd. He mm -hmm. loved to talk about lacrosse. So I, I know you well, and I'm sure you guys could stay up for hours talking. And I know when we talked on the phone, we would talk about a shooting drill that they were doing at either Calvert Hall or one they were doing in box lacrosse. And he was so passionate about the game. Um, you know, and I never really felt like it was about Dave. Um, you know, Dave really wanted to grow the game. Dave wanted to impart, um, you know, his knowledge to other people to help them. Um, you know, I knew him, as you mentioned, on a lot of different fronts. I mean, I knew him first as an alum. 
when I was a player and you know, came to learn what a great player he, player he was. I think he was the first Canadian to come to Johns Hopkins, was an All-American midfielder. Um, they, was a, they was a tough son of a bitch. And, you know, you, you keep hearing about him as a player and, and the word toughness constantly comes up. Competitor constantly comes up. But you also hear how glowingly everybody that's been associated with him speaks of him. Amazing. I mean, his teammates loved him. You know, Hunts. Hunts was this. Hunts was that. Um, so I, I got to know him that way. Um, clearly, I got to know him, uh, you know, when I recruited Kevin, and he was a, a father. You know, it would have been easy for Dave to be trying to be real involved in our program because his boy was here and because of his connection to Hopkins. And, uh, you know, to his credit, he did. I, I'm sure he had his opinions. Um, but Dave really did a great job of, of letting Kevin have Kevin's experience and not Dave's experience. Um, and Kevin turned out to be a terrific player for us. Uh, I remain close with him today. I just went to Dave Huntley Pro Night the other night um, where I saw you and the, and the Huntleys. Um, you know, and then after Hopkins, Dave was involved in U.S. lacrosse. He was involved in Canadian lacrosse. He was involved in box lacrosse. He was involved with field lacrosse. He started this uh, little indoor thing down here called the Warthogs. Warthogs. Kevin is now kind of working with. Um, it was he was just he, he was a guy that was so passionate about the game, and no one was too big for Dave or too small for Dave to make time to talk to, to hang out with, to have a beer with, um, to have a meal with, or to talk across with. He just. Uh, he was a great ambassador for our sport, Jamie. And, uh, you know, when you think of the word ambassador, you think of people that connect with, that have to connect with so many different kind of people. He was a great ambassador. I always uh, think about him as as interested as he was interesting. He yeah. could sit there and talk to me about lacrosse. We could talk about leaners for an hour, or he could sit there and, talk to my wife for an app for hours about any, you know, any topic. And it was, it was absolutely, absolutely amazing. And the other quality he had that made him such a great coach was that he was, he was very, you know, confident in himself, but when he decided to do something, he believed in it and he believed in you and the way he believed in his players uh, was pretty amazing. And I, I, there's no question that the players would have felt that. You know, it's interesting. Dave was very direct. Yeah. Afraid to tell you what he thought, but I thought he had a really good way about him. If Dave disagreed with you, he'd tell you he disagreed, but I don't, and I didn't really feel like he'd tell you in a way that was, you know, uh, belittling to you. It was just like, you know, I, he would come right out and say what he thought, but I always felt like he did it in a pretty respectful yes. fashion. I think people had great respect for him. Whether they loved him or didn't, I think Dave was well-respected, uh, you know, in, in all the lacrosse communities. No doubt. Uh, hey, let's talk a little bit about uh, it's a big year because there's new rules in Division One. I've talked to a lot of the coaches about it. What are your thoughts on the new rules? What do you like? What are you excited about? Uh, you know what? I'm excited that we, uh, we were able to provide officials with the ability to, to do what they're, what, what they're supposed to do and not be clock keepers all the time. Um, you know, I thought the uh, timer on call while a step in the right direction was just really challenging. I yeah. think those are a hard job. I, yeah. I, I will tell you, 
you'll never catch me putting stripes on. That's not an easy job at all. And uh, I, I just felt like there was an inconsistency in adjudicating it and change from game to game, from from quarter to quarter, um, you know, and from region to region. So I, I like the shot clock. Um, for me, it wasn't about pace of play. Uh, it was more about consistency and adjudicating the rules. Um, and I think we've helped do, we'll help do that. I think there'll be some unintended consequences that we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, but I, I like it. I, in general, was for it and am still for it. Um, you know, the reset to 80 seconds, I, I think we'll all kind of evaluate that moving forward. And my sense is at some point in time, we might feel like that's a, a little bit too much. Yeah. Um, the beauty of it is that moving forward, we could adjust that. Yeah. Um, I was a proponent of the dive. I'm not sure I'm a proponent of it the way it's defined now. Um, I would love to see a landing zone. And either you're in or you're out. You land in it, it's no goal, whether you're hit there um, or you die there on your own. And if you land outside the landing zone, it's a goal. Uh, I just think we went from such a subjective call with the timer on to an even more subjective call with the dive. And, and I, I don't want to take the exciting play out of the game. I just want to be able to officiate it as best. And I think we've made their job again really difficult. So um, I, I like those rules. I would tell you, I think one of the bigger rules that no one's talking about is the size of the box. I know for us in practice and in games, that extra yardage that we had we took away break after break after break in, in, in the last year or two. Now, those breaks are going to happen. You're going to see a little bit more transition. So I think that's going to have an effect. My, my greatest uh, – the thing I'm most intrigued about or interested to see is the riding part of the thing. Yeah, I was about to ask you. I think a lot of people – you know, we, we went into the summers thinking, all right, we're going to do A, B, C, and D. And finally, we, we smartened up and said, we're not going to do any of that because we don't know what this looks like. Yeah. So before we make all these big decisions, let's just go see what it looks like. Let's have a general plan on how we'd like to approach this. And now let's adjust. You know, we went out, we, we cleared skeletally to see how long it took us to clear the ball. Then we cleared and we subbed. And how long is it going to take us to sub? And then – how long are we actually going to have on offense? So probably going to have between 45 and 55 seconds more times than not to play offense, and maybe more along the lines of 45 if you're subbing guys off. Um, so we got to look at that. Um, you know, we started to wonder, well, do we ride? Well, you know what? Riding is personal driven. It's personnel driven. And if you, you don't want to take your minis off and you're good with getting them caught and potentially going back and playing defense and playing defense for a reset and then not playing offense within the next go around, then you'll, you'll ride, you'll 10 man ride, you'll pressure ride. Um, you'll, you'll do those things. Um, if you're playing attackman at the midfield, you probably won't ride that way. You'll, you'll drop back and try to play the time game. So I think what will happen is I think early on, there'll be a lot of riding, especially early in the year when sticks are and sharp and yeah, as the year goes on and coaches see that their star midfielders are played offense, road, played defense, played defense for a reset, now cleared the ball and aren't on the field at the most important time of the game because they're tired. Yep. 
may see some adjusting there, but uh, I'm excited. It's forced us to, to think as a coach and as a staff. I think it brings out the best of you when you're challenged. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what it looks like. Yeah. Well, I can tell you this. I'm psyched to be able to watch a game and not have to fast forward, you know, through, you know, 35 or 40 seconds of every possession while people are just, you know, playing games before they actually play lacrosse. I mean, that that's probably for me, selfishly, the – the most exciting part of the thing. And, you know, I think that – I don't know how you feel about that, but that, that part of pace of play is cool. I think the word flow is going to be important. I think you need to flow into things. I, I don't know that you can afford to kind of get the ball around twice and you, you can't carry it behind to get into your invert or your big little. you got to flow into things. And you got to, you know, pass. I think you're going to see more dodging out of the box. And yeah. coach – on one end of the field, bringing out right-handers to dodge down the right alley, yep. or they want to shoot the middle. Um, I think you're going to have to create an offense or offenses where if a team jumps into a zone on an end line or on an invert or in some situational lacrosse, instead of having to move all those pieces around and get to your 14 or to get to your circle look and, and then run your zone offense, you don't have time to do that anymore. You, 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 I mean, you got to flow into it. So I think that's going to be uh, interesting, but I think it's going to be good for our game. No doubt. Now, do you think – so you kind of alluded to this, but straight up, I mean, do you think this these rules are going to make for an even greater importance and efficiency in getting your best offensive guys on, or do you think there's going to be more two-way stuff taking advantage of the transition or a little bit of both? Uh, I would say until we can recruit all those guys – unless you have them, which we have what we have. Right. You know, we for a different game. Could you take, you know, a guy like Ryan Conrad from Virginia's TaylorMade for this? But that's the way they were playing anyway. So yes. really not a major adjustment. Are you going to take your best offensive players off the field on offense a little bit and take your best defensive midfielders? I mean, I think of, you know, us with Danny Jones or, you know, the kid Tarafenko from uh, Ohio State, who's terrific. Does he play a little more offense? Maybe, but can't afford to lose him down the defensive end because he's so valuable. Yeah. I think it's going to take a little time for everybody to figure out who and what they really are and want to be. Efficiency is still going to be key. There's no question about it. And especially with, like, you know, the, the point you made about, you know, people switching defenses. I mean, people, if you can't react and be able to score when people are switching defenses on you, they're going to keep doing it. And if you've got, you know, the days of like it doesn't matter because we can just kill three or four minutes with this midfield group that you know um, are, are over. You got to be able to like attack and you got to be able to adjust, um, and it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, you know, one of the things that stands out to me is shooting percentage and shots on goal. You know, you think back to before and you missed a shot, you got it back, no problem, nothing to worry about. We reset and go play again, and now your efficiency in regards to shots on goal has to be better than ever before. Um, it, it just If you keep missing the goal, you're going to wind up last 10 seconds, you're either going to jam one in there, you're going to dive, or you're going to roll it to the corner. And when you roll it to the corner, maybe you're giving yourself a chance to get people off and jump into a pressure ride or a 10-man ride. Uh, but I think, you know, the fact that we have to shoot the ball more effectively and more efficiently is going to be glaring. If you're a team that in the past has shot below, you know, 30%. I mean, we'd like to shoot 33%, 34%, 35%. 
you know, and, and, and better. Um, if you're shooting 30 and 28 and 25, and, you know, that's going to be challenging because you're going to turn a ball over a lot on, on, on the time. Yeah, no doubt. Well, that, that's a perfect segue into my next topic, and that's recruiting. You're going to have to, you know, you've always, you know, Dave, you've always been a guy that's loved to recruit and have worked as hard as anybody at it and been as meticulous as possible. There's some new rules now that are probably in the favor of Johns Hopkins University to be able to have more time to decide who you want. But in the end, you still got to find those players that have those shooting percentages, the guys that can shut people down, the people that can run the field. And um, just I would love to hear your opinion on, you know, what you're kind of looking for from, you know, uh, a character, from an athletic, from a skill, from an IQ, and, and how you kind of look at those, those different scenarios. Well, clearly, you know, the character, uh, the integrity, the work ethic, um, those are non-negotiables. Those are things that you want in every player, no matter what their skill set is as a lacrosse player, whether they're a finisher, you know, a dodger, a short stick, uh, you know, a face-up guy, whatever. Those are non-negotiables. Those are things that you want, you must have. And quite frankly, I like the new rule because it gives us a time to learn a little bit more about those things. No doubt. Um, we've been blessed with, with some of the guys we've gotten in the early recruiting process. Um, but to have the chance to – we can still evaluate them in ninth grade and tenth grade. Sure. We can still do that. So to have the opportunity to do that and learn a little bit more about them, see them play more, see them succeed and fail more, to have their club coaches and their high school coaches know more about them. Quite frankly, to have their high school coaches actually coach them. Yeah. You know, a lot of these kids we recruit were never coached by their varsity coach, um, you know, because they were recruited the summer going into their freshman year. Right. You know, I think that benefits all of us. And I know for us, we feel more comfortable with that. You know, in regards to the the, the skill set, I, I, ideally you want someone with all of it. You want big, strong, fast, athletic, you know, skilled, can shoot it. Um, but not everybody possesses those qualities. And when they do, they're probably a first-team All-American or, and or a player or a positional player of the year. Uh, so you've got to find a way not just to get the best guys, but to get the right guys for your program. Right. And we prided ourselves on trying to do that. Um, maybe prided ourselves on taking a guy that others might look at and go, you know, really? So I think of a guy like Tom Garvey, who played for us, was an All-American. He was recruited by Navy and Hopkins, and really that's about it. And, uh, you know, Navy's going to recruit a guy with character. Um, and he turned out to be an All-American and won a national championship with us and, and was a starter. Um, I remember him. I think Denver might have wanted him back in the day. They might have. They might have. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you got to search for guys that have all those things, but inevitably, you know, I think we want to get guys that can play inside the box and between the boxes. You know, you want to get defensemen that can play inside the box and between the boxes. You want to get middies that can do both, ideally. Um, you know, you want guys that are quick and fast, but it doesn't hurt to have one guy that's quick but not fast, and another guy that's fast but not so quick. Um, you know, I, I think it's critical to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, a word we keep talking about right now is toughness. Toughness and IQ are two words, you know, two things we keep talking about. To play the way we want to play offensively, 
you, you got to be smart. You got to be able to make reads. You got to know how to set a screen, how to set a pick, how to use a screen, how to use a pick. Um, you know, defensively, we want more confrontational, more combative guys um, than maybe we've had, you know, in recent years. And I feel like we're moving toward that. We want bigger, longer defensemen. If you look at our freshman class, our defensemen are exactly like they're tall, they're long. I think eight of our freshmen of the 15 are six, two, six, three and above. Um, but the key, Jamie, in recruiting is to find the combination of all those things and understand that if you have a great off-ball guy and feeder, I mean a finisher, then you've got to find a guy that can feed the ball to him. And you've got to have that. And if you've got a guy that's just a feeder and not a dodger, well, then you have to have other guys that can put a defense in a position where they're forced to react and you can create slides so that your feeder can be exactly what he is and your off-ball player can benefit from your feeder. So, you know, I think some people might say, well, I want A, B, C, and D. Yeah, we want all those things in one guy. But, you know, I think there are – it's important that we find the skills that fit our program and personalities that fit our program and be able to find the, the pieces of the puzzle that actually fit together. So that's yeah, well, yeah, it's great stuff. I mean, in watching you guys play offense, you know, you've got this great combination of being able to use the speed, you know, and, and downhill dodging along with all the big little inverts and spaghetti and all that stuff. And that, it, it makes perfect sense that you got to have, you know, all of these sort of different pieces. But IQ, you know, has to run through all of it because, you know, you have to be – you know, you're not going to have the ball all that much, but you got to be great off the ball. So – What's your take on uh, box players, both obviously, you know, you've recruited your fair share of, of box players from Canada. Um, the, tell people out there what they can do because, you know, if you don't live in Canada, how do you get up there and play box and you believe that there's good box across to be played elsewhere, you know, and, and how important is that for development of these American guys? Well, you know, it's funny. People don't associate speed with box lacrosse players, and we just had a guy graduate that had great speed that was uh... – Canadian, so that's another thing we're looking for, ideally. Uh, you know, the box lacrosse player, I, I tell you what, Jamie, the thing I'm really most impressed with is, is what a great understanding those guys have of their game. If you ask them to sit down and explain to you why they do it and how they do it and what, why and how they, what, what, what they do impacts and how that impacts the rest of the offense, they really do have a, a sharp IQ. They do have a really keen sense for what's going on um, and, and why they're doing it and how that impacts the defense and the goalie for that matter. So, you know, when you think of guys north of the border, you know, one is you think of skill. Because they play in tight quarters, uh, because it's such a confrontational game on the ball, you know, so much cross-checking and stick-swinging, that you've got to learn to handle a ball under duress. Uh, you've got to learn to shoot it under duress and pass it under duress. Um, that is a valuable skill set in our sport. Um, I think the adjustment for Canadian players come when they play against poles uh, because there's just more length to the pole, although Canadians are playing more field lacrosse than ever before. Um, the picking the two-man game on the ball, with the ball, and without it um, has become really prevalent in our sport. Um, our, our, our offense is not a box across offense. It's a hybrid of box and basketball. 
Um, you know, we don't, you know, and I mean basketball because we just don't attack one side of the field. We try to work both sides and behind the goal, and that's probably where it's different than box across. You don't use behind the goal very much. Right. Um, the toughness that comes with those guys, um, there's, uh, I love their ability, um, their, their hands and their wrists. Wrists are so well developed. There's not a lot of wasted motion. Uh, so when they get out on the field, they don't need a lot of space to score a goal on a big goal. They've been scoring goals under duress with very, in very tight quarters on a very small goal. They understand how to move a goal. Um, you know, I think box across players have a real, sometimes a better understanding of deception and how to be deceptive with their stick and their fakes. And you watch some field players and they'll fake with their hands and arms way out away from their body where box across players' wrists are up right by up by his ear, it's just a little twitch, or it's a little dip of the shoulder or a nod of the head that gets the goalie moving on a defense frozen. Uh, those are all different things that those guys do. Um, and I, I love their competitiveness on game day. They are competitive guys, and I think, you know, some of that's the hockey mentality that you grow up with in Canada. A lot of those guys play our dual sport guys throughout – a portion of their life and uh, I think there's a level of competitiveness on game day that uh, permeates within your team if that makes sense it totally does you know um, you know part of that is you know as they get older they play they play seven game series that are just battles you know and they've played some really big games you know oftentimes before they've even gotten to college and, and to play in these games that, you know, they may not be so big from having uh, 20,000 people in the stands, you know, but it means an incredible amount. I feel like the difference in competitiveness in Canada and the U S is that our kids in the summer play a lot of club lacrosse where it's like, eh, you know, you want to win when you're out there, but it's not like you're in tears at the end of a tournament, you know, and whereas the, the, this mentality of competing and playing and this, this, the toughness comes from those series is, where you, after the course of, you know, three, five, or seven games, you know, you start really hating the guy that's been beating the snot out of you the entire time, and you let him know, and it's, it's really interesting. Well, yeah, an interesting point to that is, you know, you think about when you to win a Big Ten championship or to win a national championship, you're playing on one day's rest. You know, you play Thursday, Saturday in the Big Ten. you you, you got to be – you're battle-tested. you got to – I mean, it's a fight, and then you play banged up and beat up on Saturday, and then you got to turn around, you know, in, in the semifinals. I mean, you're leaving everything you have on the, on the field to get to the national championship game, and you're beat up, banged up, tired. The weather is, you know, 90 degrees. Um, you're fatigued. And what's interesting is those guys are so accustomed to back-to-back -back games or a game with one-day rest. And, you know, I, I, I feel like – there's a toughness there, or maybe just uh, it's experience. Just, it's a common, it's commonplace for them because yeah, we've done this our whole lives. We played right. back to back to back, um, and I think there's something to be said, uh, something to be said for that. No doubt. And as far as the IQ piece and the skill piece, I mean, you know, listen, we we both. I, I love field lacrosse. Uh, and and uh, there's no, you know, I, I can't wait for lacrosse season to start, but there's something about the box lacrosse environment that teaches you a little bit differently. And it's a picking and cutting and feeding game in which if you're not deceptive with your shooting and if you don't get to the middle, you'll never score. 
You know, the shots that kids grow up shooting and scoring all through rec lacrosse and into their younger years, you would never even shoot that. One of the reasons why Canadians, I think, have better shooting percentages is they don't, they don't actually attempt a shot that isn't like a pretty close to the net and great angle. Uh, not to mention the fact that they start to learn the nuances of moving a goalie and how a goalie's playing you or how a man is playing you. And all of a sudden they seal their own man because they know their man wants to slide and, or they hook them a little bit. All these little tricks that you learn in these in spaces. I mean, it would be so great if, if kids in the U.S. could, like, learn those. Um, now you're, you know, you know thoughts on that? I think they learn the value of a shot, you know, because they don't just shoot it to shoot it. There, there, there's intent when they shoot the ball because in that game, you, you, you need to take quality shots. The other thing I, I like is in, in, in the boxing, the ball doesn't leave the field of play. So yes. there's, there's a level of anticipation. You know, Bobby Benson's guy played for me, and when the ball was loose around a crease, Bobby had a great sense for where it was, you know, and to go get it and throw it in the, in, in the goal while other people stopped playing. And what you get from some of these guys that play indoor is on most shots, there's a rebound. You know, rarely does the goalie just stop it, save it. He stops it. The ball shoots loose, whether it's in front of the goal, to the side. And these guys are so good on loose balls, and they're so good around the goal because everything they do is around the goal. They don't play very far away from it. So I, I really enjoy it. I think it's important, though, that you find that balance. Um, you know, we want to play offense, and we want to play offense on both sides of the cage. And sometimes with those guys, that becomes a bit more of a challenge. Yes. So, crucial, as I had talked about with recruiting, finding the pieces that go together. I mean, the last thing we can afford is to have, you know, three attackmen that are all Canadian, and we can be successful with them, but we'd have to adjust. We want guys that are able to, to venture to other sides of the field. Yeah, split to both hands. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And so, you know, when you think about this, you know, that's why it's just one environment that teaches you a lot of things. And really what I want to express to so many of the listeners is it's worth it to figure out a way. I Joining a box league isn't going to get it done for you. Right. But if you can find someone that can teach you or you can have practices or if you can figure out a way to get up to Canada, you know, you can learn some things that you might not learn, you know, in the field game. Um, last thing, Dave, what what um. What's your advice to, to players and parents, you know, for, of kids that are seventh, eighth, ninth grade that are dying to be able to be college lacrosse players someday? Well, you know, first off, I, I think that's awesome. I love to hear that, you know, there are kids that are dying to be that. You know, I was watching the, the Heisman Trophy uh, Award ceremony the other night and uh, talking to Kyler Murray, and they're like, do you ever think you'd be here? And he was like, well, yeah, because I've my whole life. You know, some people might take that as arrogance. You know, and I looked at it and I was like, wow, that's, that's awesome. This kid dreamed about doing this. He's like, I've I, I dreamt about winning, you know, a, you know, a World Series. He goes, I've dreamt about all this stuff. So I love to hear, you know, when you say kids that want to, you know, want to be an All-American, a national champion, want to be a part of a team. That was me. Um, you know, and we certainly work hard to try to find those guys. What, what, what I would say is, is, is this is a couple things. I have twin boys that are right at that age right now. There are 22s that play up to the 21 division. You know, and one of the things that is most important to me is that I nurture their love for the game. 
they love playing. And I don't want to do anything as a parent to deter from that or take from that passion or love they have for the game. I don't want to force them to do things that they don't want to do. So, you know, I'll, I rarely will let our guy, my guys play lacrosse when they're in another season. So one plays football, that's it, it's football. One plays basketball, that's it, it's basketball. I think we're in an era where kids are getting burnt out, Gene, and they're coming to us and there's great fatigue. Um, they've been through so many things and they've done so much that this is not new and exciting to them. Um, you know, one of the other things I, I think, you know, is, and I'm concerned with this competitiveness or competition, is we live in a day and age with club lacrosse, and, I, and this is not a negative toward club lacrosse. Right. But I, I like when we were kids and we went out in the backyard and we played street hockey, we played for something. You know, we played a series to five um, and loser bought lunch or we played against the, the other neighborhood and we took neighborhood pride in playing against one another. Uh, these guys are playing so many games that they're becoming meaningless and competing sometimes become meaningless because what are you competing for? To play four other games? Well, if we lose the first game of a six-game tournament, well, we got five others to fix it. And right. if we well, we got five others to play. So that, that's concerning to me. So my advice is to, you know, make sure it's fresh. Make sure that you're not overdoing it. Don't be afraid to be a two and three sport athlete and put your stick down for a little while or just do it on the side on your own. You can still train on your own. Right. But don't feel like you have to do lacrosse every second of the day. There are other skills learned on the football, soccer, hockey, you know, those other sports. And I feel like parents and, and student athletes that are younger feel this tremendous pressure that, well, if I play that other sport, so-and-so is going to get ahead of me. Or if I don't get a personal trainer, you know, I'm going to be behind the eight ball. And Well, yeah, you may be behind the eight ball for a little while, but playing that other sport is going to create and develop skills that that player that's playing lacrosse all year round isn't getting. And I think it evens out and actually may even propel that, that, that two and three sport athlete to greater things when they get to our level because they've never made a full-time commitment to it. So my advice is keep it fresh, keep it fun. You know, it, it, it's hard to – but sometimes you got to say no and enough's enough and let's not overdo this and let's not have lacrosse fatigue because we have it every second of every day and we're playing in 12 tournaments and, you know, we're getting guys hurt. They're arriving here hurt and we're dealing with all those things. So that would be my, my greatest bit of advice as a dad now, as well as a coach is I, I want guys that it's still fun for. I want guys that play and still have growing to do. You know, you hear all this stuff about Texas high school football players and that when they get to college, they're not progressing as much as maybe some others because they've had so much football over their youth and high school careers. But we don't want that in our sport. So I think we have to be really careful there. Yeah, I totally agree. That's such great advice. And I think when you sort of couple that advice with, you know, the – the, 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 the 
the people that have dreams and have dreamt of this and it's on their mind and they've got a passion for it. So they, they are working at it on their own, but it's not all like, you know, getting in the car and going to the next tournament, going to the next, the next, you know, event, the next practice, but doing things, you know, back in the day we played pickup sports, right? I didn't get, I just wanted to play. I just wanted to play, you know, I don't care really what sport it was and figure out how to harness that. You love playing sports, but you wanted to compete. Yes. That's the thing is you love playing sports, but you love to compete. So it didn't matter what sport it was for you. You were competing. That's right. That's getting lost is that, 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 that thirst for competition. And those are the guys you see excelling at, at the next level is those guys that are so – look at Paul Rabel. He's so competitive in everything he does. You know, Kyle Harrison, those guys are so competitive, and they were when they were here, but they came to us with that passion and with that thirst for competition, and hopefully, you know, they got that here. I think they did, and hopefully we, you know, helped develop that. But, you know, you want the – that's what we got in neighborhood sports. Everything wasn't organized, and everything, you know, wasn't – it wasn't about recruiting. Everything wasn't about recruiting. And right now, everything is about I have to get recruited, not I have to get better. Right. You know, Alabama football talks about the process. They don't talk about winning. They talk about what it takes to be successful and, and win. We talk about that here. I would rather my guys go home in the summer, not play every summer tournament, Warwick the Shore and Ocean City and Bell and um, – you know, I forget the other one, up, uh, upstate New York, like Placid. I, I would rather them not go to all four of those tournaments. All right, you want to go to one, go to one. I want them to go home and train. I want them to go home and shoot 50 shots on the run. I want them to go home and shoot, you know, 25 off the turn, righty and lefty. I want them to work on their footwork and train so that they're not burnt out from the sport of lacrosse, but they're doing the things that are going to benefit them and help them improve. You're not going, you're not coming back to Johns Hopkins or any other college campus and improved player if the thing you're doing is going to play in summer tournaments. You don't get you're, enough touches. Yeah, you're coming back because you lifted your tail off, you got bigger, you got stronger, you got healthier. You're coming back because you learned to shoot the ball with your weak hand better, you worked on your footwork, you got on the speed bag and you worked on your, your, your hand speed, your hand-eye coordination. Those are the things that are going to make kids better. So everybody in today's day and age, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people are buying into the fact that playing is what's going to get you there. And I don't necessarily agree with it. I think training and doing the things it takes to be successful is going to get you there along with playing some. No doubt. It's a math equation. I mean, how many touches are you going to get in, in a game in Lake Placid? You know, 20, 15? You're going to take three shots? Over the course of four games, um, you know, it's it's like, you know, you're going to get, you know. Not quite as fun, you know, that training compared to playing. But I will tell you, it's going to be more fun when you get back to college and you're scoring two or three goals for your team and you're leading your team to a Big Ten, a national championship. That's that, right. That's where all that hard work pays off. Awesome. And with that. I wish you the best of luck this year, Dave, uh, in your endeavor to win a Big Ten and a national championship. Fired up to watch the uh, Blue Jays play. Um, before we, we go, uh, 
just give us an idea if you got a prospect date coming up that you'd like to talk about and when you guys open and stuff like that. We, we don't have a prospect date coming up. We'll have one out there soon. Um, you know, we're uh, on, a, on to a different class. Um, you know, and it's, for the season, we start, uh, we get out on the field on January 14th. That's our first day of practice. Um, any high school coaches that are ever interested, youth league coaches that are interested in coming out and watching practice, we, we welcome that. Uh, we encourage it. Uh, happy to have those guys. I enjoy the the, the discussions that we have before and after, and uh, you know, we'll open up against Towson, and we got a great knock conference schedule with the Towsons, Loyola's, Princeton's, Carolinas, Syracuse's of the world, and and then we scrap it all with uh, you know with the guys in the Big Ten, which has turned out to be an unreal uh, lacrosse playing conference. So uh, we're excited with the work ahead of us, but nonetheless excited to get to work. Awesome. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for coming on. It was really awesome to listen to you talk, listen to your passion and, and how well thought out so many of the things are, the great stories, the great people that uh, you've influenced and that have influenced you. So thanks for coming on and best of luck in 2019. Yeah, I appreciate it, Jamie. I really enjoyed this. Thanks. All right, man. Happy holidays. Thank you too. Yeah, bye-bye. The Philocrosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 13-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. For more information, go to www.jm3academy.thinkific.com.